You turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians. We close out Paul's letter to the Corinthian church tonight. And it has been a letter that has had all kinds of emotions. Paul has wept for them. He has been hurt by them. He has pursued them. He's had to defend himself to the ones that he has poured himself out uh, in love against those who have risen up within the church to do him harm. And tonight, we'll see how Paul wraps up his letter to the Corinthians. It's really an affirmation of his love to them. He sees them really as his children. And he deals with them as a father would his children. And so let me pray before we read God's Word. Our gracious God, we thank You for Your Word that is set before us. Uh, It's perfect for our instruction, God. It's perfect and without error for us to believe it as truth. And Lord, we are imperfect. And this minister as he stands before this congregation is weak and without perfection. But we pray by your spirit, the perfect spirit, the helper, the comforter, that you would speak to us in this short time that we have together, that it would be for us hearing the very voice of God. And it would have that same power that was seen in creation and in the raising of the dead and the calming of the sea, Father, that you would speak to us with that same power and authority tonight by this word that we might know Christ and delight in him and be warned where we need to be warned to examine ourselves as we hold up truth and to be renewed and restored in this good gospel. It's in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Let me read chapter 13 to you. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now why absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
This is God's word for his people. Amen. Uh, This evening, as we finish Paul's letter to the Corinthians, I want us to see it's really a, a, a straightforward closing. He closes out the book with final warnings to tell them that he will be coming a third time. He tells them three things. One, Paul's aim in warning. Paul's aim in warning. Two, Paul's call to examine yourself. And three, Paul's goal of restoration. First, Paul's aim of warning. Paul's letter carries a theme that is found throughout all of Scripture. Warning, examination, and restoration. In fact, if you remember back to the very opening of the Bible, God, in speaking to his uh, to Adam and to Eve, he, he gives warning, doesn't he? It's a loving father to his children. He clearly lays out what he expects of them, and it is in order to preserve their life. And as Scripture continues, he continues to warn mankind of the necessity to obey him and to follow him. That's what the prophets primarily do as they cry out to Israel, turn from your sin, come back to God, obey him. And if you do not, this is what's going to happen. God warns because he loves and we enter the New Testament and it continues to work that way until revelation, until there is no more warning. Christ has finally come back. So warnings meant for our good. I think of the warnings that parents give to children. I've told you this before. There was a time my father was sitting in the pulpit. I'm sitting with my parents or with my mother out in the congregation. And I was giving her all kinds of fits. And my dad stopped preaching. And he looked right at me like I'm looking at Jonah. And he says, young man, you wait till we get home. (laughs) That's all the warning I needed to stop and sit still. I think you know what got home. I already did an illustration about those (laughs) kinds of things. A parent warns a child because they want them to know the danger of sin and consequence and of disobedience. The aim is to give them an opportunity to change their course It is meant for good. So Paul begins tonight with telling them in verse 1, after defending his authority, I'm coming again to you. And he warns them that when he comes, he hopes to find those those who have sinned and all others, that they repent of their sins or he will discipline them. He says, I will not spare any who refuse to do so. He is going to exercise the authority that was given to him from heaven to discipline them and if necessary, to take the unrepentant and to set them outside the body of Christ, outside the church, to remove them from the congregation. And he here directly relates this authority, this argument that has been the last four chapters in coming to them with the very voice of Christ unto them. And a reflection of Christ's own authority. Paul has been accused by them of being weak and being mild. But so was Christ, he says. Christ had every appearance of weakness in his death, verse 4. Crucified as a criminal. Mocked 
by the religious leaders, reviled by the nation he came to save, naked, abused, and forsaken, he died. But Paul also speaks of Christ's resurrection. He says he's now living. This Christ, who was naked, is clothed in righteousness and has ascended to his power and authority on his throne in heaven. And he lives ever to save and to judge. And in mentioning this to the Corinthians, he highlights the warning that Christ's death and resurrection gives to the believer. These Corinthians who have been comfortable with their sin, who have allowed certain sin to remain among them as a congregation, and those individuals who have been quite comfortable with saying, yeah, I know Christ, and yet they're friends with the very sin that had Christ crucified. You see, the warning Paul's laying before them in in magnifying both the appearance of Christ's weakness and his power is that they get to see And understand, do you understand what sin deserves? Well, look at the sun upon the cross. Where the full wrath of God fell upon him in your stead. Is sin serious, Corinth? Yes. Look at Christ and look how he suffered and he died. Also be warned, Corinthians and us. That the Christ who was crucified is the Christ who has been raised from the dead and now reigns in power and all this authority. So the Christ who both can save you by his death, which warns you of the seriousness of sin, if you will not repent and turn, is the same Christ who now sits in power and authority to judge the earth and to judge men and women. And so Paul warns. He warns before he comes, don't be friends with your sin. Turn to Christ. Paul's voice of warning is no different than an ark that stood there for how long before it rained. To say God's wrath is coming for sin. And Paul says, I'm coming. And yet there was a day when the doors were shut and the flood came. Warning is for our good so that we may know our danger and how to avoid it. Paul is accountable to God to declare this message, and we are accountable to God to heed the warning. Paul will not spare the unrepentant sinner, and neither will Christ on the last day. Scripture is filled with this type of warning for our good. How do you deal with your sin? That leads us to our second consideration, Paul's call to self-examination. Verse 5, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And that probably leads us to several questions. How do we examine ourselves? How do we really know that Christ is in us? What does Paul mean that we may fail the test? We're to take a a close look at our own hearts, Paul's saying, and see if we are truly a Christian. One theologian says it this way. Do I profess faith or do I possess faith? There is a vast difference between those two things. So let us take each question in turn. And I know this is relevant to us. 
Because so often I've heard it said and I have felt this way even in my own heart. I wonder if I really am a Christian. I wonder if Christ still loves me. How do we examine ourselves? The answer is really simple. It's what Paul's been arguing for uh, through Corinthians. We examine ourselves according to what is true. That's why he has been fighting for truth. That's why he's so adamant. Stop listening to these false apostles and believe the truth that I'm laid before you, that your own heart has the Holy Spirit giving testimony. These things are true. How do we examine ourselves by what is true? And often self-examination mixes up truth. By this, I mean we can look inwardly at ourselves for truth rather than outwardly at God's truth. Our feelings, are they trustworthy? They're not. That's not what he's saying to do. Look inside and see how you feel. You got a good feeling today about Christ. That's not what he's talking about. Paul's call to self-examination is not a call to trust our heart or our feelings. Instead, it is to look into the mirror of God's Word. And the only sense that we are to look at our heart is to see if Jesus Christ is seated there. Verse 5, test yourselves. Or do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you? What a privilege that Christ would set up His home in us. Paul's call to look inwardly is to see if we are obeying the truth of God's word. Now here's the rub, right? You look inwardly and you say, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not obedient. I'm not obeying truth. But this is actually the beginning of what Paul is calling for, for a believer that searches his heart according to the truth will find Christ is indeed their only hope. When you look inwardly and you go, I'm a, I'm a mess. I'm so inconsistent. What hope is there? Christ. If we examine ourselves, we will recoil at the sin that is found in us and we will want it rooted out. And we'll want it not in us, to not be complacent with it as Corinth is being warned here. And that's what truth does. It's not disconnected from the previous point of warning. Truth brings us to the necessary fruit of the believer, to repentance, and it drives us to the, to the promises of God about who He is so that we look inside and we see who we are. We turn and look to the truth of God's Word and see who Christ is. And see what God promises to His people. That His Word would be a light to our path. You see, truth exposes with light. And truth tells us that our, what our sin is, is truly doing to us. What a cancer it is that eats away at us until it has all of us. And at the same time, truth tells us what Christ has done for us. Truth doesn't merely expose our problem. But it tells us of God's gracious answer to it. This is why Paul warns and then he exhorts to self-examination. Corinth has been friendly with their sins and with those in the church who refuse to repent. Light opposes darkness. 
darkness, and truth opposes sin. Self-examination doesn't mean that we will look inwardly and find no sin. Instead, self-examination means you will look inwardly and find all kinds of sin and will by faith know what to do with it. Know where you might turn with it. Know that you have hope in the midst of such, uh, such wickedness that you can go to Christ the one who has finished the work necessary for your salvation and the one who sees and knows your heart better than you do, that you don't have to conceal it, that you can lay it before him and be unburdened. No, Paul desires this for Corinth. He desires it for us. Self-examination is not self-help. Self-examination is word examination. Paul, um, Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and, and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How do we know if Christ is in us? If you remember in John 3, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus and He said to him something that was quite radical. You must be born again. If you want to see the kingdom of God. Parents. When you have a baby. What is the first thing that the nurses do is mama you're laid out on the table and dad's pale and bent over in the corner. What is the first thing they're looking for in the child? The signs of life, right? Is this child breathing? Is the heart beating? They want to see where are the signs of life? And Christ says you're to be born again. So what are the signs of life in the believer? What are we examining ourselves for? What does it mean Christ is in us? The tree is known by its fruit and so are believers. What is the fruit we are to see in believers? What does the Christian life look like? It isn't perfection. That's not what Paul's saying. Look inwardly and see if you find it. You'll be disappointed. The fruit we see in the Christian is primarily faith and repentance. Yes, there's, there's many other fruit that come out of a Christian, but primarily these things. And Paul says you will fail to meet the test Paul talks about without this. That there isn't life without this. Faith and repentance acknowledges along with David in Psalm 51. I know my transgressions and my sin. It's ever before me. When I look inwards, I see it. But you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me the wisdom of the secret heart. Blot out all my iniquities. How do we know Christ is in us? We confess our sins and we trust in His salvation. Paul warned those who sin and all of us examine yourselves and be about the work of killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. I love that phrase. Oh, that we would remember it. Paul prays in verse 7 that they will not be doing wrong but to check against truth and confess and turn from sin. A dead man has no concern for his sin, but those that have been born again, this is the breath, this is what it means to live and to walk in Christ, to see their sin 
and to turn to Christ. In one sense, you will look inwardly and fail the test and you will see your sin and failure to obey and know the hopelessness of saving yourself. But the believer at the same time will pass the test if he looks inwardly and sees his sin and takes it to the throne of grace where we may confess it and be robed in those righteous robes that Christ has purchased for us that he literally, like the prodigal son, wraps those who are covered in filth with his robes. And at any given time, it goes up and down. We may not feel the assurance of our salvation. And there's a great lie that Satan attacks believers with, that he would have you believe it with all, every fiber of his being. How could Christ love you? How could you look inside and and for a moment think Christ could love you? You hypocrite. You repeat offender. How could Christ love you? Your faith is so weak. That is why Christ gives us assurance from the word of truth that life isn't rooted in us, but in Christ And your assurance is that all who come to Christ will never be cast away. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's truth. And when you look inside and you examine yourself, that is hope and that is assurance. This is what Paul means when he says examine yourself. This is the lifelong exercise of Christians. It wasn't, there was a time around campfire at some camp, I gave my life to Christ and repented of my sins, and that's the last time I ever said sorry. It's lifelong. It goes on and on. Are you trusting in yourself and your own assurance, or are you trusting in Christ and His assurance? Not to the measure of your faith, not the measure of your faith, but the object of your faith. Saving faith has one object. Jesus Christ. So Paul has warned that he will deal with all those in the church who aren't repenting of their sins. And he asks us to examine ourselves and root out sin wherever it may be found. And finally we see Paul's goal of restoration. The measure of Paul's love for Corinth comes to full shape in verse 10. The whole book wrapped up into this verse, he says, for this reason, I write these things, even the difficult and hard things I've had to say to you while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing you down. The whole of this letter is summarized in this verse. He longs more than anything that in his coming, he will find them walking with Christ producing the fruit of faith and repentance. And he doesn't want to metaphorically have to come and do what my father had to do. Look, I told you and I warned you and you disobeyed me. And now I have to discipline you. Paul hopes that they'd hear and that they'd respond so that metaphorically he doesn't have to take them up on his knee and discipline them. That he doesn't come and instead of hugs and greeting, it's a severity. Bring them before me. Put them on trial. Your witnesses, I need them, and I'm going to deal with it now. That's not how he wants to come. Isn't that the desire of every parent with their children? 
We don't want to have to exercise the painful authority over you because of your disobedience. And as a side note, parents, make sure when your children are obeying and walking with Christ, you tell them how, how wonderful that is. Encourage them in the faith. That the only dealing we have with them is severity, but we encourage. Let us do that with each other as well. There is time for building up and a time for tearing down. May we be built up in what is commendable and tear down what is destructive, much like the Old Testament prophets as they spoke to Israel. And I'll tell you, whether Paul has to come in severity or in encouragement, both are actions of love, just as it is with a parent. In this, Paul is showing himself to be a true apostle and a steward of his commission. Truth may cut both ways. It may cut away that which is sinful in killing us, often painfully so, and it may build up. And I imagine you need to hear these words of restoration. Have you fallen to sin once again? Be restored in the grace of Jesus Christ. Confess your sin and know peace. Have you looked inwardly and found that you are far too comfortable with your sin? Then be warned this night by the cross of Jesus Christ that sin is a serious matter. Have you looked inward and not found Christ at all? To all who look to Christ and receive Him will be saved. Have you felt the severity of the Lord concerning your sin? Has it robbed you of assurance the Lord can rebuild what is broken? His severity is to lead to restoration. The same severity that Israel felt in judgment was to lead them to repentance. Of course, all this is featured in Paul's closing benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He closes his letter with a reminder that the whole Godhead is at work in your salvation and in your peace, the grace of Christ for those who are sinners, the unchanging love of a Father towards us, even in our constant failure, and the Holy Spirit who cleanses us and dwells in us to remind us of the guarantee in the Gospel and our help in our sanctification. Amen. Let's pray.